0: Hey garden nerds, I have two big announcements before we get to today's episode. Both are coming in early 2022. First, over the holidays, I'll be developing and recording a brand new online course all about pest control. It will walk you through my step-by-step process for identifying, diagnosing, and finding solutions to your biggest pest problems. We'll start sharing more details about this exciting new course in mid-January, so stay tuned. Second, and this is kind of a big one, I wrote a novel, and it's called Garden Variety, and it's being published by William Morrow, an imprint of HarperCollins, in February 2022. It was set for publication in March but they moved it up to February, so you get it earlier. Here's a little bit about it. It's set in a community garden in Los Angeles and explores what happens when you put people of different stripes together in tight quarters. It's already available for pre-order anywhere books are sold, so search Garden Variety and my name, Christy Wilhelmi, that's W-I-L-H-E-L-M-I, on your favorite bookseller's website, more details to follow for upcoming events and book signings. Now on with the show. It's the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast, where we spend time chatting with expert gardening guests, and we ask for their favorite tip. I'm Chrissy Wilhelmy. Thanks for joining me. My guest this week is a longtime colleague and fellow Garden Nerd, Robert Korick. He's the author of 18 gardening books, 18, (laughs) and they focus on organic integrated systems, permaculture, irrigation, and edible landscaping. His newest book, Sustainable Food Gardens, Myths and Solutions, is packed full with myth busting data and his research from working in the field since 1978. Welcome to the podcast, Robert.
1: Hi, it's great to be here.
0: I'm so glad to talk to you. We pass by each other a million times, at least each time we are at the Heirloom Expo right, together. Right. Uh, you're always selling your books at your booth, like Understanding Roots and other great publications that you've created over the years. And it it must be such a great thing because you live in Santa Rosa, where the Heirloom Expo is. I know,
1: it's very right. convenient.
0: <laughs> it's nice. So do you have a garden up there in Santa Rosa? Or what's no, your I used space to, like? but... The,
1: the, fire, the fire got within six feet of our house so oh my god that was tough and it also burned down the deer fence so that wasn't so cool oh no but i was amazed the deer ate all the potato vine. <laughs> i thought there'd be too much solanum or toxins in them but they ate them right down to the stubs
0: wow so you don't have a garden right now is that right
1: a few little things in the tubs. The deer didn't get the tomatoes. We grow some stuff in tubs because of the Bermuda grass and the gophers. Ah. So it's not very extensive right now, but we can't grow much else because the deer come in.
0: I see. And it's going to take a while before that deer fence will be repaired, if at all?
1: Well, we're working with the insurance company right now.
0: Okay. Wow. Yeah. Protection is key uh, to harvesting (laughs) vegetables, isn't it? Well, I am so delighted by this new book you've sent me. Uh, It's quite a hefty tome and it's called Sustainable Food Gardens. It's really astounding. And I think, honestly, it's one of my new favorite gardening books because it's full of charts and graphs, which is so garden nerdy. And I really appreciate that. And it's proving and disproving gardening myths and practices that we've all heard of forever so how did this particular book come about
1: well i've been uh, researching and practicing since 78 but i really started accumulating data in the uh, early 80s and then i did my edible landscaping book in 1986 it came out after four years of production and then since 86 people keep saying oh yeah to do a sequel do a follow-up come on let's hear more and i put it off and i had off and on written for about five years pieces of it and then the pandemic hit so the dedication the dedication of the book includes paula and the pandemic
0: yeah i love it it says uh the dedicated to paula and then it says and the COVID 19 pandemic that gave me so much time to complete this book which I relate. I wrote two books during the pandemic. It was oh, crazy. It was the yeah. best time to do that because everything else sort of fell away. So that was great. So this is a compilation book of some of your other earlier material, right?
1: A little bit. Uh, I tried to have a little bit of overlap, but if you never read any of my other books, this would be fine. you could get all the information you need. Uh, some of it does expand on uh, other parts of the books, but, uh, like I did a gray water handbook in 1988. And when I talk about gray water now, it's far more advanced and more accurate
0: and legal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You were subversive back then doing things <laughs> exactly. that were legal. So, and, and that's my next question, actually. You talk a lot about gray water systems and irrigation in the book, uh, which I, I think we could go down that rabbit hole for days. But one of the things I was shocked to see was your research on daily irrigation versus infrequent irrigation. What were your findings? Well, this is
1: daily with fresh water as opposed to gray water. Um, But basically, contrary to many people's thinking, if you do a small amount of water every day to equal about what was lost by the Vechel transpiration. In other words, what water is lost by coming out of the soil and what water is lost coming out of the foliage. If you replace that on a daily basis, the plants just cruise along and never go into stress. So you start your drip system, just as the fall uh, spring rains start to dry up a little bit, and then you turn on daily. My, I do like uh, one, one minute. Well, one minute of a half a gallon hour emitter is not much water.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: so you're, you're you're not wasting water you're putting down the same amount of water you would watering once a week if you use weather as your guideline but you're doing it on a daily basis and so like one woman in uh, india she was growing chilies and she used 38 percent less water but she got 48 percent more chilies. wow and basically in all the research i've done it starts at 20% increase in yields and goes up from there. So that even though you're conserving water, the yields can be, uh, most cases, a minimum of
0: 20%. That is shocking because it's so, well, I, the follow-up question because I, <laughs> I <miss laughs> my mouth's hanging open here because, you know, we've all been taught that deep water is better for driving down roots. So do you start out with a Deep rooting strategy from the beginning and then back off to just daily watering? Or what how does that work for you?
1: Well, it's all integrated. And what's integrated is the drawings in my books of root systems.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, less than 5% of all trees have a tap root, and the top 12 inches can have as much as 50% of all the roots of the tree. Mm-hmm. And they grow sideways, not deep. Right. So if, as long as you're keeping that top foot happy, the tree is happy. Okay. And if you go below that foot, yes, you'll get some more roots watered, um, but it's not that critical uh, for maximum growth. Now, if you were to use daily irrigation and stop and do it once a week or once a month, there would be stress. Mm-hmm. You'd have to wean it off of daily. So daily is not a approach; it has to be done consistently.
0: Got it. Now, there's a whole chapter on free fertilizer. Let's look at that more closely. Cause there's, you know, the obvious free fertilizers are cover crops, but you go even a little further into that. So what are some free fertilizers that are available to gardeners everywhere?
1: Oh, everywhere. Well, you have to use uh, the cost of some seeds sometimes to get it started. Mm-hmm. Like uh, where I live, we grow fava beans all through the winter. Ooh, yes. They do quite quite well. And uh, you you get new growth in the spring. As it begins to grow, you can eat the foliage, the tips of the plant are edible, and the leaves are edible in salads. And then they grow up higher. And then all of a sudden, you can have green shell beans that are fresh. And then if you let some of the plants go longer, you get dry shell beans. What's fascinating for me is every spring, there gets to a humongous amount of black aphids yes. <laughs> near the top of the fava beans. But yes. if you just have patience, they're usually gone in a one to four weeks.
0: Those don't affect the formation of the beans themselves?
1: Not that I can observe, because what they do is they bring in the earliest season beneficials. <laughs> so I have all the photographs in my book of, a, I mean of uh, ladybugs were taken on aphids on fava beans and then the beneficial wasps show up. So usually it's uh, ladybugs first and then the beneficial wasps and all of a sudden there's no aphids and the plants just keep growing.
0: I love that. That's nice and refreshing to hear honestly uh, because people tend to stop growing fava beans when things get warm because of the aphids and they don't want them there but they go away and they attract good bugs to the garden so that's good to know Uh, what are some other free fertilizers that you like to to get? oh well
1: all the legumes become important but there's a real important aspect of how you grow a legume for green manure green manure is a plant that's cut off and some of the foliage or the stubbles dug into the soil it's not a no-till technique it's a way to get incredible fertility but it requires tillage. Um, so like with fava beans you would cut it off four to six inches above the soil and just till in the stubble and the roots and leave it there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The tops would go to the compost pile. Um, with other legumes, it's always important to know that a legume is making nitrogen fixing bacteria on its roots to help itself and nobody else right growing. <laughs> It's a competitive strategy Mm -hmm. so that when you are growing legumes most of the nitrogen is in the foliage until they start to bloom once they start to bloom they're dumping the nitrogen from the roots into the foliage near the seed pods Mm -hmm. so that it can dump real quickly from the foliage into the seed pods when they're formed at the end of the process all the nitrogen to speak of is in the seeds right the pods so when you wait that long you lose a lot of nitrogen and you can't get any value from green manuring. You need to do the green manuring before or just as the flowers form. So if you see a little bit of white flowers on fava bean, it's time to do the green manuring.
0: Right, and that means cutting down the foliage to soil level or sort of near there. And then you put the biomass in your compost bin, a la Grow Biointensive, rather than tilling it into the soil, right?
1: Right, exactly.
0: Right, okay. Oh, can I ask you about stinging nettles? Because I actually have them volunteering out in my garden every year. Do you have the
1: the six foot tall ones, or do you (laughs) have the little (laughs) tiny? And, they
0: they get about three, maybe two okay. to three feet tall. They're not that big, but they sure do sting when you touch them. Right. <laughs> a, so do those do those uh, contribute to? Are, they're not nitrogen fixing, but they're a nitrogen ingredient.
1: Right, they're good at accumulating nitrogen from the soil, but they don't generate it by bacteria on their roots.
0: Got it. So they're Stinging great to grow. Dandelion
1: is a tough plant to grow because it's so irritating. So I recommend that you grow it on your neighbor's garden, (laughs) and then you harvest and bring it into yours. But there's a lot of value to stinging nettles. One is that they are very good at accumulating calcium and nitrogen and other micronutrients. They're very fertile as a food. Um, They're very high in nutrients. They're one of the top maybe 10 plants for uh, nutrition, or at least so-called weeds. Um, When you take the foliage. you pick it carefully and then as soon as you steam it, it's neutralized and there's no no stinging. So boiling or steaming neutralizes the toxin and it won't hurt you at all. Um, So it's got very good food value. It's got a lot of nutrition in the foliage if you want to cut it off and compost it. And the root system grows sideways and improves the soil. It doesn't have a taproot. Mm -hmm. A lot of people uh, hear, especially from permaculture people, that all these deep taprooted plants are needed to accumulate nutrients that other plants can't get at. Well, stinging nettle gets at them in the top six inches of soil because I think because it's genetically programmed to do that. It doesn't, doesn't have a taproot to grab anything down deep, but it's one of the top five to 10 dynamic accumulators.
0: Got it. Yeah, and I have a recipe for stinging nettle soup that I will put in the show notes for this podcast. Oh, good. Good, uh, good. Let's talk about soil microbes for a second. Another shocker in sustainable food gardens is that the highest number of soil biology inhabit the top three inches of soil. Yes. What? Tell and, me more.
1: And the fungi. if if you look throughout the book you'll see chart after chart where the dynamics are happening the top three to four inches so in some cases the top four inches might have x microbe and you go down four inches it's less than 50 percent so the more you keep a no-till situation the more you're favoring the natural stratification of bacteria and microbes so like if you come along and take a shovel and plop it upside down the dirt so-called dirt
0: mm-hmm, soil uh, whatever <laughs>
1: <laughs> you uh, you bury the air loving bacteria down six eight inches and then you take the deep loving bacteria that don't need air and bring them up to the surface so we take the anaerobic bacteria bring them up to the surface they start dying because there's too much air Mm. And if the air loving bacteria in the top four inches and bury them down, there's not enough air to make them happy. So on both ends of the spectrum, you're causing stress.
0: So let me ask you, because I have, I, you know, my idea of no-till is that I lay an inch of compost on the top and then I scratch it into the surface, the top two or three inches with my fingers am i doing more damage by doing that than not well,
1: you're you're doing some damage with the microbes um they can replenish pretty fast so what we usually say like with tillage in particular wait two to four weeks before you do anything with the soil mm-hmm. like sometimes you plant squash and the leaves go yellow well it could be because the soil is too cold but also it could be a you didn't wait long enough for the bacteria to re-stratify mm-hmm. and you're weak on nutrients because
0: of that. That makes a lot of sense. There's always, you know, people always ask, like, why, why do I need to wait a week before planting after amending my soil? You've just answered that question.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: That's perfect. Okay. Well, I want
1: to mention, is it possible to mention fungi? Yes. Because I have a chart in the book that shows that Oh, maybe seventy-five percent of the fungi, mycorrhizae fungi, live in the top four inches of the soil. Well, yes. anything you do that soil is going to absolutely destroy the mycelium. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, uh, like I, I say, that women walking around in high heels can do a lot of
0: damage <laughs> to the garden.
1: <laughs> but anybody walking around too much can compress the soil and destroy the fungi mycelium. So that's why no-till combined with permanent beds where the walkways are permanent mm-hmm. is the ultimate way to go
0: yeah and again if i'm just scratching some compost into the top couple of inches how long does it take or do you even do you know what does your research show that how long well, does it, it take to reestablish?
1: there's too many variables the soil type the temperature yeah. the latitude the longitude i mean got it so, but I usually say two to four weeks and you're pretty safe.
0: Okay, good to know. All right. Now, before we get to our tip, tell me a little bit more about the vegan gardening appendix in the back of the book.
1: Well, I put the vegan gardening in the back because I wanted to make sure that it was information that was in the book in totality, so it covers A to Z with vegan gardening, it is perhaps the most uh, organic way to do things. Meaning you grow a lot of your nutrients in the vegetable garden. You don't import tons of compost at $12 a yard from some other place, five, 10 miles away. So like in our county, if I were to buy compost, it's five miles of the closest source and almost 20 to one of the sources that people like to use. Well, if you grow green manures and legumes in your garden like the vegans do, you can have that quote free fertilizer and not bring in imports. So the idea is to have a closed loop as much as possible, as few imports as possible and the greatest yields in the way of f- food to go out of the garden. And they what they do with the vegans is they put a fair, Maybe 25% of their garden is in green manure, mm-hmm. or legumes, and soil-improving plants, like annual stinging nettles, a good one. But um, it's hard to do. But in, um, there's a, a guy named um, O'Brien is his last name. And his mother had viable truck farms using no-till methods 40 years prior and he's maintained that continuity of developing gardens that have no tillage and grow their own fertilizers. And he has th- two or three books, I know at least two books, O'Brien, and surface cultivation is the technique where you might cultivate two to four inches underneath to break the, to get at the crown of the root system mm-hmm. of the plant. But it's, it's, it's not shovels. And they make all their own compost, it, within the system, they make the, the bins out of s- stacks of straw as U-shaped, make their compost. The After you made some, the, the straw becomes part of the compost. They get a few more bales in. So that's one of the few imports as bales of straw. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the vegan and the surface cultivation people are the models that we should try to emulate to have a total closed-loop truly organic garden. Like in one sense, I don't call my garden organic in the sense of what's left of it. Mm-hmm. I buy a compost because it's very little and it needs to be concentrated in the bins. Mm-hmm. I don't make enough material to, to keep that bin happy. So I buy some compost. Well, I buy organic compost. I try to go to places close to my house as possible, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm nonetheless importing.
0: Right. And I know that a lot of vegan fertilizers contain cottonseed meal, soybean meal, and alfalfa meal, which are three of the most likely to be genetically engineered crops.
1: And sprayed.
0: And sprayed. Right. So how do people, well, should people grow that themselves?
1: <laughs> well, you can do it with the mixed diversity of a cover crop. Mm-hmm. It has to have more than just legumes. It has to have grasses you don't have to worry about most weeds, unless they have tap roots, um, so that you have lots of different root systems. You have real uh, fibrous ones with the grasses. You have ones that are more uh, not tap root. Uh, surface cultivation takes care of the very upper roots, but it doesn't leave the horizontal roots four six inches down damaged. So, I think you can do it, but the problem with no-till and growing your own nutrients is that you need to have a certain amount of area. And that's where the research is really lacking. But O'Brien's book talks about that at great length. Um, But we don't have any, quote, hard science because a soil in England, compared to a soil in my backyard, there's no way of getting a correlation of what that's like. So, what size does that area have to be? By and large, it's at least a quarter of your garden. Yeah. You have to rotate every year. Now, if your garden's only 10 by 10, that quarter might not be enough. Mm-hmm. So, it's what I call horizontal versus vertical. Mm-hmm. Vertical intensive gardening needs inputs, horizontal, quote, organic gardening can make the growth happen that makes its own
0: fertility yeah cool well it is tip time do you have a favorite tip that you'd like to share with the garden nerd audience
1: can i give two
0: absolutely
1: (laughs) whenever possible use plants that have multiple purpose more than one use out of the same plant so a lot of people grow nasturtiums but some people don't realize that you can eat the flower the leaf the green seed pod the mature seed pod and you can pickle the green seed pods like capers yes so you get a lot of use out of that and sometimes they get loaded with aphids but the aphids stay there and the beneficial insects show up so they're they harbor beneficial insects that can move on to eat stuff in other areas of the garden now another favorite tip is that aphids don't suck
0: <laughs> what
1: they don't actually suck sap out of the plant. They have mouth parts that open and close. So it's dependent upon the sap pressure to get the sap into the leaf in and out its rear end. And why do I worry about that? Well, the more you increase nitrogen, the more pressure you have in the sap so that you've over fertilized an apple tree. And it doesn't, most cases, you don't need any extra fertilizer for an apple tree. But let's say you go and add compost four inches of compost you might be amping up the pressure in the sap and supporting a lot more aphids right and if you didn't do that
0: yeah I love that tip because well aphids don't suck first of all that's hilarious and then just the the whole idea because I've seen it and studies that show that if you put too much nitrogen fertilizer or compost down that increases the foliage growth, which the new growth, and that attracts right. more aphids. And so if you're trying to get rid of aphids, you might want to check your nitrogen levels first.
1: You know, like in my book, I have a chart that shows how much new growth on an apple tree or fig or what have you indicates it's getting plenty of nitrogen. Well, with apples, I think it's like less than 12 inches of new growth in a season means it's getting plenty of nitrogen without you doing anything. Well, so many home gardeners say, oh, it's spring. I'll put the compost on my apple tree they're wasting their compost and they have the chance of amping up the sap pressure to get more aphids. Mm-hmm. so in most cases if you see 12 inches or more growth on an apple no fertility no compost just mulch
0: that's a good tip those are both great tips I love the, the multi-stacking functions of nasturtiums and other plants like it Do you, do you have any other favorites that are that are well, like that
1: like coriander, you get the young plant it has got one spice and you get seed to get another spice. And then you have a, a mm-hmm. tremendous, if you let some go to bloom, mm-hmm. ones that are going to be making seed, a lot of beneficial insects. Like coriander shows up maybe in the top 20 list of beneficial insect attractants because the flower parts are so tiny and so horizontal like little landing paths that the beneficial wasps can get there for that nectar and pollen and they're tiny we're talking about wasps they're less than an eighth of an inch
0: yeah parasitic wasps they're my favorite favorite beneficial insect because they're macabre they poke holes in aphids and lay their young inside them
1: right and you can tell what aphids got a parasite in it by it's all bloated and brown so is that how
0: do i do it i've never known
1: if you look real close to the aphids you might have green aphids on um, on s- some of the milkweeds you have orange aphids et cetera, et cetera. but when they get parasitized before the wasp comes out the aphid gets really bloated and round like a, almost like a balloon and it's very noticeable different than the rest when the aphid when, when the wasp has come out it has a little hatch a little bitty semi-round hole in it of which it is attached on one side so they pop out of this hatch and you can see the little flange <laughs> of the, of the lid where the aphid wasps came out.
0: That is so cool. I love that. Now I, I have to ask you about, uh, I'm going a uh, allelopathy because there are, you know, there, there's two sides of this uh, what shall I call it? Controversy. I don't know. Discussion that, um, you know, I recently listened to a talk from someone who said that there really is no research about uh, that proves that allolo, allolo, that any plants are allelopathic.
1: You're talking to Linda Ch- Chalker Scott.
0: Uh, I think so. Yeah. So um, yeah. So there's that, and then there's what's in your book. So let's talk about right. it.
1: Well, I I'm, I'm good friends with Linda but I have disagreements on some levels. Mm -hmm. And I find scientific studies that show that certain plants stunt the growth of other plants around it. Um, One study was done, this is a classic one, uh, Organic Gardening Magazine or their research farm wanted to see if marigolds would get rid of the pests of beans that eat holes in the bean leaves. So they planted a companion planting of marigolds along each side of the bean row and they planted bean rows with nothing else guess which one made the most food the one with the holes in it because <laughs> marigolds exude a chemical which i name in the book and i can't pronounce that stunts the growth of plants around it and so it's a it's a evolutionary status the situation where they're trying to outcompete other plants mm-hmm. and um, so I have never talked, sat down and talked to Linda about this, but I think I have the science to back it up.
0: Okay. And just for listeners who aren't familiar with allelopathic plants or that term, it's, you know, I use pine needles as as the prime example where grass doesn't want to grow underneath it because it exudes some kind of compound that hinders the growth, right?
1: Right, right. And like there's lots of studies that I find in England and in America where growing grasses beneath fruit trees reduces the growth of the trees. So like in England, they grow grasses on purpose in cherry orchards because cherry trees tend to be so vigorous. They <laughs> want to slow them down. And so part of it is a chemical part of it is that the, the root system is so thick on a grass, it's less likely to let rain below the surface. Uh, But mostly it has to do with the chemical composition of the roots.
0: Got it. All right. Well, thank you, Robert, so much for all of those tips and for being a guest on the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast.
1: Great. I had a good time. It was fun.
0: How should people, where do people go to find you?
1: Well, my books are on my website, like other people, and my books are cheaper than Amazon on my website. So it's Robert Korick with no space, and you spell Korick. K-O-U-R-I-K. If you Google the title in my books, like the new one, you'll get my name and you'll get me. Um, I show up in the first 2,500 pages. But um, it sounds like Kori, the woman that's a broadcaster, so you can remember how to pronounce it, but it's not. she spells it wrong. So you have to remember K-O-U-R-I-K.
0: And do, are you on any social media platforms?
1: No, not really. I <laughs> I don't believe in social media. I've done social media where I wanted to get people to come to lectures. I did, or I didn't get anybody. You know, I have fifteen hundred followers in one account. No, nope, I offer my book at seventeen dollars instead of twenty. I got not one book sale. So I I did a blog, one hundred twenty-five blogs, and I they were very lengthy. So that, that was a problem. I didn't make them short enough.
0: Right.
1: <laughs> and I, at the end, I offered a book for 15 bucks instead of 20, sold one. And do you know how much time it takes to write 125 blogs? Yes, I mean, I,
0: do. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I don't,
1: you know, I, maybe it's because I'm older, but I just don't believe in it.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, that's fine. I know, you know, I, I talked to a lot of gardening people who, are unplugged and that is the way they prefer it. So people can go to robertcouric.com and that is where they will find your books. And I do recommend this book. It's full of information you as a garden nerds will love. All right, garden nerds, you'll find a link to Robert's website on gardennerd.com this week. We'll also share where you can find his books and we'll maybe find a couple of other things to add to this post when the time comes. That's it for this week. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Visit us for tons of free gardening information at GardenNerd.com. Show your support for this podcast by becoming a Patreon subscriber. You'll find us on Instagram and Twitter under nerd one on Facebook as GardenNerd.com, and of course, our GardenNerd YouTube channel. Happy gardening!